all know what a tall order it can be to rise above partisan discourse, especially today with just a few weeks to go to the November 3rd presidential election. But our guest today lays it right out in his book's preface. General H.R. McMaster writes, this is not the book that most people wanted me to write, a tell-all about my experience in the White House to confirm their opinions of President Trump. Good evening, everyone. I'm Jim Falk, president of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. And General McMaster, as you know, served as National Security Advisor from March 2017 to April 2018. In his latest book, Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World, was published just today, and it aims to transcend the political vitriol and help readers better understand the most significant challenges we face today as a nation. I know many of you have already received or have purchased a copy of Battlegrounds, but if you've not yet, I hope that you'll go to interabangbooks.com. That's our independent bookstore here in Dallas, Texas. And if you type in the code DFWWORLD, you'll receive a 10% discount, not just on Battlegrounds, but any books that happen to be in your shopping cart. I also wanna thank our sponsor of tonight's program and partners. Today's program was sponsored by one of our directors, Maisie Hyken. Thank you, Maisie. Promotional partner was the National Defense Industrial Association, the Lone Star Chapter. An additional thanks to World Affairs Councils from across the country, but especially Houston, Jacksonville, New Hampshire, and Orange County. And if you're not yet a member of any World Affairs Council, I hope that you'll go to the website worldaffairscouncils.org and find a council near your home. As always, I hope that you'll go to our YouTube channel at DFW World and uh, subscribe. It's a great way to catch up on past programs. And to keep up with our calendar, just go to our website at dfwworld.org, or you can always go to the World Affairs Councils of America website to see not just what we're doing, but what our brothers and sisters across the country are doing as well. So let's get started. General H.R. McMaster is a native of Philadelphia, and he graduated from West Point United States Military Academy in 1984, he served as a U.S. Army officer for 34 years and retired as a Lieutenant General in 2018. He remained on active duty while serving as the 26th Assistant to the President for National Security, better known as the National Security Advisor. He taught history at West Point and holds a doctorate in history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where I'm told, since I'm a Virginia Cavalier, that the sky is always Tar Heel Blue. His earlier book, was titled Dereliction of Duty, and it grew out of his uh, doctoral dissertation, which focused on how political pressure misguided our policymakers in the Vietnam War. He's currently the Fuad and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and Stanford University. General, we've really been looking forward to this. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Jim, thank you so much, and thanks to all, all who are here from the World Affairs Council. I, I think we need the World Affairs Council today more, more than ever. So it is a real privilege to be with you. You know, I, I just thought I might start by asking you about your relationship with Fuad Ajami. Uh, I suspect most of our viewers don't know him. I, I knew him when I worked at the Middle East Institute many decades ago. Well, he, he was a dear, dear friend, one of the wisest people I've ever met. And as you know, his, his prose was, was elegant, almost lyrical. And and he was a wonderful analyst, but he, he viewed everything for, through the lens of a humanist and, and, and a very humane person. And uh, 
had the deepest respect for him. And it was such a tragic loss when, when we lost him and, and, and his, his wife, uh, Michelle, is a dear friend as well. So what a, it's an honor for me to be able to hold the chair here at the Hoover Institution that bears his name. And I'm just doing my best to try to live up to it. Well, I think you'd be very proud that you're holding his, his chair. And for those of you who may not be f familiar with uh, Dr. Ajami, he was a professor at SAIS for a number of years and really just one of the most astute observers of Middle East politics. Well, let's start, if we may, General, with today's news. We woke up today seeing that Josh Rogan had a report that intelligence agencies went back to, I guess it was August 30th or 31st, uh, saying that uh, President Putin probably directly, and they use that word, is trying to influence the election with particular focus on uh, Vice President Biden. What are your thoughts? Well, it should come as no surprise, Jim. What Putin is trying to do is drag us down. And the way he's trying to do it is to shake our confidence in our democratic principles and, and institutions and, and processes. And I, I really don't think he cares very much who wins the election as long as he discredits the election itself. What he wants to do is tear us apart during, but especially after the election. And this was the pattern in 2016. This isn't, isn't well, mis, well understood, is that the IRA, the Internet Research Agency, this front organization for the GRU Russian intelligence, really peaked its activity after the election. And they had this whole campaign ready to go uh, in case... Uh, you know, in the case of Hillary Clinton winning, which is what everybody really kind of expected. I think maybe even including Donald Trump expected that. And then when, when Donald Trump won, they had to shift their disinformation campaign from, hey, well, the, well the, the vote was rigged and that's why Hillary Clinton won to the vote was rigged and that's why Donald Trump didn't win the popular election, right? So, so they, um, they immediately supported the, you know, the not my president, the resist movement. And, and essentially they, they, they want to tear us apart, Jim. And and we just have to do our best not to let them, you know, not to let them shake our confidence in our elections. There's so many things that was disturbing in that report, but one is that they're really trying to get closer to some of our members of Congress who may be being duped unwaringly. A absolutely, right? I mean, we, we have to be really cognizant of the fact that they will try to co-opt, uh, you know, elites, opinion makers, uh, and, and, uh, and to do so in, in a way that polarizes us, that pulls us apart from each other. Uh, these are, you know, these are, are unwitting people who become unwitting agents uh, of, of the Kremlin. And there are many, many examples of this uh, from, you know, from the 2016 period, the, the investigations that, that followed that, the Senate investigation, a very good, a very good uh, investigation uh, in the UK as well. And these are some of the sources that I, I drew on uh, when, when I wrote uh, Battlegrounds. We're gonna come back to Russia, but take a moment and really explain uh, the, the central theme of a sense of, of your book where you talked about strategic narcissism, which is essentially what got us in the, in the trouble in so many parts of the world. And then we'll come back to some regional issues. Well, I use the term strategic narcissism to describe our tendency to define the world only in relation to us and in particular, how we might like the world to be. And because we don't view complex problems and challenges from the perspective of the other, we, we therefore define the world, again, only in relation to us, and, and oftentimes, as we would, we would like the situation to be rather than the way it really is, we then develop strategies that are based on wishful thinking, on, on self-delusion, uh, are self-referential. And this is why we, we 
we put into place policies that are either over optimistic as they were in through the 1990s or, or over pessimistic as we've seen a shift in our foreign, foreign policy, especially since 2008. So going back to Russia, uh, there's a section of your book where you said that at least three U.S. presidents have, in a sense, fallen under Putin's spell. Why do you think that is? Is it just that we're looking for it's sort of the American, uh, the American personality to always want the glass to be half full? You know, he's an operator. Putin's an operator. He's a KGB agent. He is, ex he is extremely good at using people's weaknesses against them. And so I, I, tell, this, I tell the stories in, in, in the book of a President George, uh, George uh, W. Bush meeting, meeting Putin. And, 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 and in the, during this meeting, Putin let dangle uh, from, from his neck a, 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 a gold cross. And of course, knowing that, that President Bush would inquire about it. And, and then President uh, Putin tells him this apocryphal story about you know, how, this, how this cross was the only item left after his grandmother's house caught on fire and he's worn it ever since. Of course, it's a complete lie but it played to what, what he thought uh, President uh, Bush's predilections would be in terms of, 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 of forming a bond with Putin. And then of course you have President Obama coming in also saying, well, let's have a, a let's reset the relationship uh, with, with Russia. And, and uh, we have the, you know, the stories of, uh, and, and, and the, the example of, of Secretary Clinton traveling to Geneva to meet Lavrov with the reset button. And we have President Obama leaning over uh, to Medvedev, as Medvedev is keeping the seat warm for Putin to come back into the presidency and saying, hey, we'll be able to work with you more after the elections and trading off missile defenses in Poland for what he hoped would be a better relationship. Well, President Trump says, well, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if we had a relationship with Russia? What's, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with it is it's just not going to happen under Putin. And it's not going to happen because of the, the emotions and aspirations that drive and constrain him. And this is the other theme of the book, Jim, is strategic empathy, a ter term I borrow from a great historian named Zach Shore, dear friend of mine, and just one of the clearest thinkers, I think, on, on foreign policy from a historical perspective. And, 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 and strategic empathy is essentially paying attention to those emotions and aspirations and ideologies that drive and constrain uh, the other, and how important it is to really un understand patterns of, of adversaries, but then also to try to maybe anticipate pattern breaks. And we saw some pattern breaks with Putin going back to 2007, denial of service cyber attacks on Estonia, 2008, invasion of Georgia, uh, continued political subversion, the use of cyber-enabled information warfare in Europe. And you know, we didn't adapt to it. You know, we, we should have seen it earlier, I think. You, know, you can tell that you were a, a general in, in the military for a long time because there are sections to your book where you say, now here are the three points, here are the four points. <laughs> So let's go, and, I'm, and, and I won't do a, a Rick Perry moment on it and ask you to remember all your points, but uh, you, you talk about some mistakes that we made after you know, winning the Cold War. I don't think George H.W. Bush would ever want to phrase it that way, but how did the, the result after the Cold War affect our, our policy? Well, you know, I, I don't want to be unsympathetic to, to people from this period, right? There, there was reason to be optimistic, Jim, as we all remember, for those of us who are old enough to remember, uh, in, in the 1990s. Uh, you know, I tell the story in the book that I was patrolling, a regiment was patrolling the east-west German border the day that East Germany lifted travel restrictions to the west. And then we watched, uh, we watched the, the Soviet, the, the, uh, the, the Cold uh, War end, the, the Iron Curtain come crashing down, uh, East Germany uh, being absorbed into West Germany, the Soviet Union breaking apart. Uh, and that was followed very rapidly after that by 
by the Gulf War, during which we, we displayed tremendous military prowess against the sixth largest army in the world with an overwhelming victory. And so I think this was a period of growing optimism. Remember President George H.W. Bush saying, hey, I, I hope that this is a new world order that is, that, that is no longer governed by the rules of, of the jungle, but rather by, you know, by, 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 by rule of law. Well, that, that was a hopeful aspiration, but it turned out not to be the case. And, and the assumptions that, that you mentioned that we bought into were that there was this arc of history that had guaranteed the primacy of our free and open societies over closed authoritarian systems. Hey, ideological competition was over. And the belief that this technological military capability had guaranteed our primacy and given us a preponderance of power. Military competition was over as well. And a corollary to that is great power competition was over. There'd be a, a condominium of nations that came together to help solve the world's greatest problems. This is when terms become widely used and widely expected like global governance. And we, we did not see the world as competitive like we did during the Cold War. And then we were, it was a setup, as I argue in the book, a real a setup for disappointments, right? And this was because over-optimism grew in, into hubris and, and, and that hubris encouraged really complacency as new arenas of competition were emerging uh, with China, a more assertive China that wasn't playing by the rules as we had hoped that they would. A, a Russia that was, that, that in which reforms failed in, in the 1990s, Putin comes to power and begins his real campaign to restore Russia to national greatness. Uh, the, pr the problem set associated with North Korea, right? That we assumed, hey, well, things that that state can't survive. I mean, they, they've got it. It's got to get better than that. This is the idea of a, of an impossible state in North Korea. Well, that turned out not to be true, as the third generation of the only the only hereditary hereditary communist dictatorship in the world uh, came to the fore. So I could go on about this, but essentially. None of these assumptions turned out to be true. And we were, we were ready for a rude awakening, a rude awakening in the form of 9-11, a, a rude awakening in the form of the unexpected length and cost and difficulty of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So let me ask you, once we begin to get a sense that things weren't working, why is it so difficult for us to pivot and accept that perhaps we need to go in a different direction? Dallas Baptist University is a global, Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a Master's in International Studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher, at leeb at dbu.edu. So I, I think I think it's it's hard for us at times to, to make that kind that make make that reassessment. I think an element of strategic narcissism is this element of wishful thinking. Really, really, the next war will be fundamentally different from all those that have gone before it. Really, really, you know, our our, our adversaries will see the light and begin to cooperate with us. And, and so I, I think that it's important always, important always, to uncover the implicit assumptions that underpin our policies and subject those assumptions to scrutiny. That's what I endeavored to do uh, when I came as National Security Advisor. And I think as a result, we were able to put in some, some long overdue and very significant shifts in our foreign policy. And I would say foremost among those shifts was the approach to China. 
Well, uh, let me just remind everyone, I have lots of questions, but I want to be sure that we engage our audience. So please do send me in questions. So if I don't ask you this question, um, I know one of our directors will say, why didn't you ask? So you were with President Trump nearly every day for a little bit over a year. And what are your thoughts about why he is so unwilling to talk about uh, President Putin's involvement or Russia mischief? Is it because of a concern about that it might, uh, in his view, affect the legitimacy of his victory? You know, I, you know, I think the president, and, and I've spoken about this you know, once or twice before, I think, and, and, and I write about this in the book, he conflates three separate questions. Question one, did Putin meddle in the 2016 election? The answer to that is, heck yes, he did. It's incontrovertible, incontrovertible. Question two, did Putin have a preference for who would win that election? I think that's open for debate. I really believe that, 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 that what Putin wanted most was to divide us and pit us against each other. I mean, it's, it's a fact that about 80% of the bot and troll, troll traffic was on race, to divide us on race. A distant second was on gun control and, and immigra or immigration or vice versa for second and third. And so what they really wanted to do was just divide us on these issues, pit us against each other, and then just raise doubts about the legitimacy of the election process. And then the third question is, well, if they did prefer Trump, did they, did they have an effect? We'll never know the answer to that. And I think the president, because of the way things were handled prior to the election by the FBI, which I, I think was, uh, you know, was, was, uh, should be a huge disappointment for the agency, you know, this, the steel dossier and so forth. I mean, I, I think that, that he came in, you know, under this, you know, under this cloud that, that in his mind conflated these three questions. What did you want to accomplish when you decided to take the job uh, shortly after President Trump was uh, elected? Uh, as we know, Michael Flynn was not there for very long. What were your goals? You know, you know th this was the fifth president on whom I served, if I include my time at West Point. And for me, I wanted to continue serving. To me, it was, a, it was an opportunity to continue serving our country, to serve a, a new president, and to address, Jim, what I had seen is the huge disconnect between policies and strategies based in Washington, based, I think, kind of on the world as, as Washington might like it to be, and the reality of places that I, that I was confronting through personal experience uh, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I thought that I could put into place a, a process that would compensate for the pitfalls in how we develop our policies and strategies. Pitfalls that I was made aware of through historical research as well. Uh, and you mentioned the, my book on, on Vietnam and, and how that book describes a fundamentally flawed decision-making process. And, and I'll tell you, Jim, it was pretty surreal you know, to walk into the West Wing of the White House that first day on the job and walk into, for me, McGeorge Bundy's office and, and to, to recognize that, okay, that, that flawed process that I described, hey, well, you're in charge of that process now. And so, so it was an opportunity to serve, and I was grateful for it. And what I wanted to do is help restore what, what I call in the book strategic competence. So you didn't hold back when we talked about what's happening in Afghanistan, especially the negotiations between Afghanistan and the Taliban that, frankly, obviously, we're, we're, we're forcing upon the parties, I think. Elaborate why this concerns you so much. It concerns me because really Afghanistan is at the frontier, a modern day frontier between barbarism and, and, and civilization. Uh, we are engaged there against the enemies of, of all civilized people, a, a brutal enemy 
who really uses ignorance to foment hatred and then hatred to justify violence against innocents. And it's immensely important for us to sustain that effort, not that we should bear the brunt of the fight, not that we should keep, you know, 100,000 troops there, but, you know, we, we have, you know, 11,500, but who knows what the number is. It's a small, small number now, mainly there to enable the Afghan security forces and support an Afghan government such that Afghanistan can be hardened against the regenerative capacity of the Taliban and these other terrorist organizations that are already there in this sort of terrorist ecosystem in between Pakistan uh, and Afghanistan. And, and, and you know what, I mean, Afghanistan doesn't have to be, you know, Denmark or Switzerland. It just, it just needs to be Afghanistan. And, and Afghanistan has, has achieved quite a bit. I mean, we waste a lot of, of money and effort there, but, but that shouldn't take away the fact that the Afghan people no longer have to live under that brutal regime of, of the Taliban, which they lived under for five years from, from, from 1996 to 2001. And they remember it, you know, and, and I wish that we would just spend more time partnering with the 95% of the population that don't want the Taliban back than partnering with the, the 5% of the, the population who, who are our enemies, who are connected to and overlap with groups like Al-Qaeda. And, and you really argue that there's a closer relationship between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda still than perhaps we're appreciating. There, there absolutely is. These, these groups overlap with each other. You know, a very good analyst on, on Afghanistan, a guy named Tom Jocelyn, who writes for the Long War Journal. It's, it's really worth keeping track of. You know, he, he has this saying, you know, we try too hard to disconnect the dots. And, and we try to create the enemy that's convenient for us, right? We want to get out, we want to get out right? We're tired. We have the end the endless wars narrative. But, I, you know, I think Americans can generate the will to sustain a military effort at that level if they are spoken to by leadership. If leaders say, hey, here's what's at stake. This is why it's important. Remember 9-11? Remember almost 3,000 innocents killed? Remember trillions of dollars taken out of the U.S. economy? This is an insurance policy against that ever happening again. And by the way, Whereas we, we have lost, well, we have lost 10 courageous, dedicated soldiers this year in that fight. The Afghans lose 30 soldiers and police every day fighting to maintain the freedoms that, that they've earned and, so, and won. So I, I think it's, it's worth the effort. I, you know, wars don't end when we leave, Jim. I mean, I think you know, I, I tell the story in the book of the withdrawal from, from, uh, from Iraq in December 2001. And, and, and that, there's a direct line between that. And the diplomatic disengagement that, that accompanied it, uh, and the rise of ISIS, and the fact that by 2014, ISIS is in control of territory the size of Great Britain, and has generated a you know the greatest humanitarian catastrophe since the end of, of World War II. Now I know that. Uh, and, and remind me what year that was that when you went to Afghanistan and headed up that special task force for General Petraeus on anti-corruption. When was that? That was 2010. So I was there for almost two years, 2010 to 2012. So what do you say when, you know, lots of Americans think we just continue to spend money in Afghanistan, it's a corrupt government, and uh, we're just, you know, wasting money? Yeah. Well, as I mentioned, I don't believe that money's being wasted. I do believe that the Afghan government has to reform. We're lucky now. We have a, we have a partner uh, with, you know, he's not perfect, you know, but President Ghani, he's a lot better than, than working with the Taliban, and and he's committed to reform. He's brought in some really good people. I think their, their Ministry of Defense and their armed forces and their special operations forces are much, much more capable than they've been in the past. The police and the Ministry of Interior are still, you know, still a big problem, a big project to, to work on. 
But you know, these things don't happen overnight. And, and, and in the book, I, I use the analogy, it's an imperfect analogy as all historical analogies are, but, but look at South Korea in 1953, right? South Korea in 1953 was, was reeling from decades of, of, of war. Uh, the, the country had been devastated uh, by Japanese occupation. There wasn't really a tree standing. The country had no raw materials. It had, it had a corrupt government in, in place and a, and, a, and a hostile neighbor and, and an illiterate population, right? I mean, who's going to put your money on that? Now look at South Korea. And so really the point I'm trying to make is there, there are no short-term solutions to long-term problems. We have to be able to sustain a, a sustainable foreign policy uh, over extended periods for us to really uh, advance our interests internationally. Which has not been in our character. We have a, a, a question from Dr. Moza Kazim Shah, and she asks about Pakistan. What do you think of Pakistan's role in the stability of the region in Afghan peace talks. So yeah. I know you wrote quite a bit about your relation, your, your work in Afghanistan, in Pakistan. Right, right. So, so uh, Pakistan is, is motivated uh, you know, ma mainly by India, right? I mean, it, I mean, it's, it seems trite to say it. I don't mean it to be to, to seem, you know, to, to trivialize it. But but uh, the Pakistani army sees an Indian behind every tree, and views the the she views what it does in Afghanistan, but what it does with these terrorist organizations mainly through that lens. Since 1948, uh, Pakistan has used illegal armed groups, terrorist organizations as an arm of its foreign policy. And so Pakistan is keeping the Taliban regenerated, is, is supporting other terrorist organizations, the Haqqani Network, which is a bridge you know, between the Taliban and, and between other groups like Lashkar-e-Taiba, uh, which uh, which are the, uh, is the group that, con that conducted the Mumbai attacks? Um, and, and what was that? What year was that, uh, Jim? In 2009, I think. Yeah, right at Thanksgiving. Yeah, 2009, and 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 uh, and, and, and 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 other groups, uh, you know, like like Al Qaeda, right? And, and so I I think that that uh, that the, the policy toward Pakistan should be one of. Of, of really forcing Pakistan to make it to make a choice, right? I mean, Pakistan is on a path, I believe, unless the army changes its behavior, of becoming a pariah state like North Korea with a single state sponsor, China, right? And and that's not in Pakistan's interest. And so I, I think it's it's really well past time for the Pakistani army uh, and, and its intelligence arm, the Inter Services Intelligence, the ISI, uh, to stop the support for for terrorist organizations, which, by the way pose a huge threat to the Pakistanis. And they've suffered tremendously at the hands of terrorists who share in this ecosystem. ISIS Khorasan right, was, was drawn in large measure from Tariq-e-Taliban Pakistan, which is the group that carried out the very heinous attack against the Pakistani army school where they murdered school children. It was, and, and I thought if there was gonna be a time when Pakistan would change its policy and its behavior, it would be then, but they, they haven't done it sadly. Do we still have that close relationship with Pakistan's military that we used to, where they would come here and be trained? Is that still happening? You know, it, it is happening. It's important. We have to keep it going, right? Uh, that's, that's an element that I would not shut down. I would shut down other forms of assistance, uh, and we have. Um, but, you know, what, what happened is, after Pakistan, it was in, after it became incontrovertible that Pakistan had a nuclear weapon, right, was pursuing a nuclear weapon, that's when the Pressler Amendment kicked in. And, and as a result, we cut off all military-to-military -military ties to, to Pakistan. That happened. Uh, th that happened at the same time 
when there was, was really an Islamist uh, you know, government in place, uh, Islamist leadership within in the army. And, and, and what we're dealing with now in large measure are the cadre of officers that came up through that system with little or no interaction with, with U.S. Army officers earlier in their careers. And, and I think it's important for us to foster those relationships because we want the relationship to get better. It just depends mainly now on, on, on Pakistani, the Pakistani Army's decisions. So I know you're walking a fine line here, so I'm going to ask two or three questions together and we'll see how far you go. This comes from uh, Pittsburgh. Uh, so, you know, it's Pennsylvania, so that should make you feel good. General McMaster, could you characterize how it was to work with President Trump? Were you able to be effective working in your very direct manner? And another person essentially asked the same type of, of question. Uh, let me find that. Uh, Now I can, oh yeah, uh, being around the president, what do you think of the most recent allegations regarding the president speaking ill of the veterans? So take those two and then we'll go to China. Okay, so, you know, I, I believe that we and our staff, that I served the president well when I was there, but, but in that toxic environment of Washington and, and you know, in, in, in the White House, you just get kind of, you get used up, right? And, and you get used up in large measure because you know, there, there are people there who don't share what you would hope, I think, everybody's motivation would be, which would be to help the elected president succeed and help that president succeed by presenting that president with multiple options and then assisting with the sensible you know, implementation of, of that president's decisions. Jim, as you know, in Washington, there, there's a second group of people there who are not there uh, to, to serve the president in that way, but instead are there to advance their own narrow agendas. Uh, and there are those who then define themselves in the role of saving the country, maybe the world from the president. This is kind of the, the so-called- You're not talking about your successor, are you? <laughs> John so, so, so I, you know, I, I think that I was in the first category, you know, and the people that were in the second and third categories, I think they saw me as an impediment, right? To, 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 to pursuing their, their, their agendas. So, so um, you know, I, I was at peace with, I knew I would get used up there. I wasn't going to stay there longer than I was useful to the president and to the country. And, and so we, the president and I came to a mutual agreement. You know, I left on good terms with him. Um, and uh, I, wanted, I wanted my successor to succeed. I mean, I, I really did. I, I mean, you know, the, these jobs, I mean, they're much bigger than any one of us, right? I mean, uh, you know, I, I, and so I, I think it's really, really important to bring into the service in the, in the White House, a sense of humility. And, and you've been around politics and government for a long time, being a, a flag officer, senior officer, but did it make you more cynical? And do, do, you, do you tend to vote or as a military officer, do you feel that you should sort of stay away from any type of partisan positions? Well, well Jim, you know, I, I read a biography of George Marshall when I was in high school and, and, uh, and I adopted him as my role model in terms of military professionalism. And I don't, I don't expect this of others. Certainly, I want everybody, you know, everybody to, to vote. But I, I chose not to vote. And, and I went into West Point when I was 17. So I never voted. I, and and I, didn't, I didn't vote because I felt that the military had to be absolutely nonpartisan. And this goes back to our, our historical roots, right? I mean, George, George Washington's grandparents fled the English Civil War. That left a really indelible mark on Washington. Uh, and this is why our founders we're adamant about the military being above politics. It's why, it's why Thomas Jefferson, who was initially opposed to the military academy, was for the founding of, of the United States Military Academy in 1802. 
because the officer corps was tending to be all federalists. And he said, Hey, we need some, you know, we need some Republicans in there. And, uh, and, and, um, and, and so he, you know, so he, uh, he founded the military Academy and admission to the military Academy is as it is today with, you know, based on congressional districts to get a cross section of our whole country uh, because of, of that desire to make sure that, that the officer corps reflects really all backgrounds and, and all political parties and is not partisan in any way. And what, what disturbs me these days, Jim, I see people try to drag the military, you know, into partisan politics. And we just have to fight. We have to fight to stay above it. We have to fight to transcend it. Well, let's go over to China. And your chapter on Russia concludes essentially that Russia is a nuisance, but China is a threat and a real concern. Break down for our viewers how you see uh, China strat China strategy. Well, I think the I think the first you know the 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 first consideration has to be hey what what is driving Chinese behavior you know, what what are the emotions the aspirations the ideology, and I would put first and foremost fear, fear of chaos, fear of losing control, and that's why you see the Chinese Communist Party extending and tightening its exclusive grip on power internally. It's also connected to this narrative of national rejuvenation and taking center stage in the world. And that drive, that drive is aimed at achieving some, some objectives uh, that, that are at our expense. The first among those is to establish exclusionary areas of privacy across the Indo-Pacific region and to challenge the United States globally. A second is to, to undermine the international order and international organizations, great case in point, is the World Health Organization. So they can bend organizations to their narrow interests and get them to behave consistent with Chinese Communist Party for, for foreign policy. And the, and the other, you know, the other aspect of, of this is this overall approach that I describe in the book of co-option, coercion, and concealment. This involves forms of economic aggression where China wars companies and countries uh, based on the, the, the draw of its market based on the allure of Chinese investment. And then once you're connected, once you're in, coerces, coerces those parties to support its foreign policy, or at least to turn a blind eye to its aggression, including the, the, the brutal repression of its own people. And, and, um, and, and so China is, is sophisticated in this approach. Uh, it is a comprehensive strategy. I described the three main strategies uh, that, that China's pursuing to, to, to advance their interests at our expense. First of these is, is, uh, is military civil fusion, right? This is an overarching policy that does differentiate between private companies and the government, right? If you're a Chinese company, you have to act as an arm of the government. Related to that is the Made in China 2025 initiative, which is for China to gain a dominant position in the emerging data economy and to gain a dominant position in terms of technological military prowess for the People's Liberation Army. That entails extracting as much sensitive technology and intellectual property from us as possible with a sustained campaign of industrial espionage and by buying us off, right? The Thousand Talents program is a great example of, of that. And then there's this, you know, this program of one belt, one road, where China you know, acts like they're doing you a favor but then it debts you way beyond what you can pay, trades debt for equity, or, or uses that debt for, to, for, for coercive power over you. More recently, what we're seeing is the export of the entire authoritarian system and this 
technologically enabled, you know, Orwellian surveillance police state, right? And you see that in countries like Cambodia and Zimbabwe and so forth. So, so I'll tell you, if, if the Chinese Communist Party succeeds, our world will be, will be less free, uh, you know, less prosperous and less safe. Tell, tell people about the social score. That was really terrifying. <laughs> well, this is a way that, that, that the party you know, weaponizes your social network against you, right? So monitors every aspect of your behavior. This is why if anybody on here has a teenager on TikTok, tell them to get the hell off you know, because you, know, you don't want to trust the Chinese Communist Party with your data. I mean, I mean, do you expect the Chinese Communist Party in the future to treat your child better than they treat their own people? I, I, I don't think so. So they, so they monitor every aspect of, of your life. And they do that, you know, they, they, they do that through these apps that run on their cell phones that monitor every, you know, every aspect of their lives that expect them to take quizzes on Xi Jinping thought, Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics. I mean, you know, and laud, uh, the, you know, laud Xi Jinping and so forth. And if you don't, if you don't, if you don't adhere, to the expectations of the party, you get docked. Your score goes down. And then you can't take advantage of certain what they think are privileges, transportation, housing, and so forth. But you're not only docked, members of your network are docked as well. So they start to turn to you to say, hey, you know, get with the program. So it is, uh, it is worse than what Orwell uh, envisioned in, in 1984, Jim. So I'm sitting here with an article that came out this morning from Geopolitical Futures, uh, George Friedman's uh, think tank. Mm -hmm. Taiwan won't shoot first. And uh, there was a, it said this comes after, Taiwan's government said Monday that its pilots would not be the first to fire on Chinese military assets. This comes after two Chinese bombers and 16 fighter jets crossed what's known as the cross-strait median line between China and Taiwan this past Friday. What's going on? Well, this is a campaign of intimidation aimed at, aimed at Taiwan and, and aimed at, at, at the West and what, what you've, at all of us. I mean, what, what you've seen is China become very aggressive in, in the wake of, of COVID-19. Uh, They're engaged in the broad range of activities that I mentioned earlier. And, 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 uh, and, and Taiwan is the main object uh, of Xi Jinping's immediate desires to expand his control, right? To make China whole in his view, uh, which is to which is to subsume Taiwan uh, back back into into communist China, and and uh, and they have become you know much more aggressive not only with their rhetoric but as you mentioned with with their actions as, as well. What's troubling about this is is this a this could be a way to desensitize Taiwanese defenses. So hey, the next one that comes might be for real. And, and the, the second is that when they engage in this kind of aggressive behavior. Accidents can happen, and there can be a rapid escalation. You might, might remember the uh, the Hainan Island incident, where you know, a, a very aggressive Chinese PLA Air Force uh, pilot you know rammed in, into one of our surveillance aircraft, and and, and that could that could have that could have precipitated a, a much larger military conflagration. You see this with their naval forces. I mean, they're, they're ramming ships in the South China Sea. They've sunk a couple of vessels. I mean, it's you know you know and and for the environmentalists who are here. I mean, how come China gets away with destroying complete ecosystems in the South China Sea with this dredging and building of, of, of islands? You know, I, I think the, the, the acreage number, if you just Google this, you know, South China Sea coral reef destruction China, uh, it, it's, it's astounding. So the, I, I think the, I, there should be fleets of Greenpeace boats, you know, <laughs> sailing 
uh, the, these uh, these islands and, and the Chinese vessels that sustain them. So Carolyn Hockley asks, President Trump says he inherited a poor military. Your comments, um, President uh, Obama decreased military strength after pullout from Iraq, as other presidents did as well. So essentially, how strong is our military now? Well, I'll tell you, we, we really suffered, uh, I, I believe, under the Obama administration as, as a military uh, because uh, those force reductions were made when the wars were still going on. And so you, you had much less military capacities, much smaller forces with really high demands on those forces. And you begin to kind of consume your readiness and your, and, and your training just based on that pace of operations. The other, the, the other dynamic here, and this is inflicted by, you know, by a Republican Congress, is the Budget Control Act. And the way the Budget Control Act really doesn't allow you to do multi-year budgeting uh, and then incentivizes keeping older and older systems on life support rather than having the predictable budget necessary to procure new systems, which in the long run will actually cost less to maintain. And, 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 and the result of that is there was a huge bow wave of de deferred modernization in the military as well. And, and of course, we've increased spending, but we haven't caught up with that bow wave, you know. And and uh, and so there there are concerns that I have over readiness. We've seen some of the symptoms of, of that, uh, but but also on on our, the, our our technological capabilities. I mean, Russia, and China, others have developed these asymmetrical capabilities. They're designed to take apart what they see as our competitive advantages, but also size size of the force and. You know, we see that with naval vessels, you know, for, for example, or numbers of aircraft. And, and the trend we've been on, Jim, has been to, uh, you know, to, to build fewer and fewer, more and more exquisite, more and more expensive systems that are prone maybe to fail catastrophically. And I think we need a different approach to designing weapons and, and our systems such that they can degrade gracefully and such that they can be employed at sufficient scale, uh, and, but at an affordable cost. So we have about 15 more minutes, and I have a question from Bill Clifford. He's the president of the World Affairs Councils of America, so obviously he gets a question. But it's similar to the one from uh, Michael Dietz, and it's about multilateral institutions. So Bill says, doesn't China have a better chance to bend international organizations like the WHO towards their interests and against ours if the United States withdraws from them rather than pursue the hard work of multilateral diplomacy? Thank right. you, Bill. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Bill. And thanks for the great work that the council does across the country. And, you know, I, I mean, one of the, one of the points I make in the book is that really the greatest strength of a nation is educated populace. The world, the world affairs council plays a huge role in that. And, and so I, I just see you as not only as a fun place to be for a book discussion, but part of the solution to the, to the challenges I, I lay out in, in, in the, in the book. But Bill, this is an, this is an important decision that has to be made, I think, you know, on a case by case basis, right? I mean, we know that not only China, but, but Russia, other autocrat, uh, other authoritarian uh, states are undermining these institutions, trying to bend them to their purposes, to actually turn them away from 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 what they were designed to do. Uh, we've seen this in the World Trade Organization with the adjudication mechanism. I think that's worth fighting for. Uh, it, we've seen this in the International Civil Affairs Organization, where China's in control of that, which is a, a, a travesty. We saw in the World Health Organization. I, I'm kind of prone to, hey, compete within them, compete within those organizations to advance our interests for partnerships with, with like-minded countries. I mean, if you, if you can envision a cocktail party you know, of the U.S. And, and our allies and China and theirs, I mean, what party do you want to go to, like, really? But there are, but there are organizations 
uh, that are just maybe beyond hope at times. I mean, I think the Human Rights Council falls into that category. It was just so completely subverted that it became laughable and we didn't, we can no longer lend our credibility to it. I think UNESCO also fell into that category. So, Bill, it's a great question. I, I don't think there is an answer to that. I, as I mentioned, I'm biased in favor of, hey, compete within them, but, but in some cases, it's, they're just too far gone. Tell me about the relationship that you built with uh, one of our neighbors here in Dallas, Secretary of State, former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, as well as uh, Jim Mattis, who's gone and spoken at a number of our councils. Yeah, well, th those are two you know, two professional uh, men who have accomplished great things in life, and 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 who joined a, an administration uh, you know, wanting to to do their best for the country. So it was a privilege to serve with them, and and you know uh, you know those relationships are not without difficulty. I mean, you know, what's those saying, you know, where, where you stand is based on where you sit. And there's a natural tension kind of, you know, between uh, a national security advisor and a White House and, 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 uh, the, and cabinet officials who are at the heads of these departments. But, you know, what I did is I tried my best, Jim, to, to forge a collaborative relationship, right? I mean, I, I didn't want an imperial National Security Council staff. I really consciously modeled what we did every day after the late Brent Scowcroft, who passed away earlier this year and was just a fine... Uh, a fine person, a great role model, was gracious enough to spend two hours with me um, early in my tenure as National Security Advisor. I called and, and spoke with or, or visited every living National Security Advisor uh, soon after I took the job, which was fascinating and gave me uh, access to some tremendous advice. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and, you know, I, I think that we succeeded in getting policies done. I mean, was it harder than it had to be sometimes? I mean, yeah, unfortunately, you know, unfortunately, yes, right. Uh, but that's not unprecedented, as I mentioned. You know, the uh, the Brzezinski Vance relationship comes to mind. I also remember Henry Kissinger, right, in this inevitable way, saying the relations between the National Security Advisor and the Secretary of State were never better than when I was National Security Advisor, uh, because he, you know, because he held both positions, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> Right. Well, one of the chapters that I really enjoyed the most, uh, because it was it was truly thrilling, was when you talked about the negotiations to, to bring about the summit between Kim Jong-un and President Trump. You were really in the thick of it there. Uh, we don't have time for you to go in too much detail. And spoiler alert, we want people to read the read and enjoy the book. But hit the highlights for us there, please. Right. Well, you know, the, President Moon Jae-in was, was, President of South Korea was, was itching, right? Itching to have a dialogue with, with, uh, uh, with, with North Korea. It's consistent with, you know, he, he had been chief, chief of staff during the, you know, the, the famous sunshine policy uh, uh, um, overtures uh, toward North Korea in, in the past. And, and he succeeded. He succeeded in, in that initial meeting, uh, immediately after which my counterpart, uh, Chung Wee Young, a really fascinating man. I tell his life story, actually, in the in the book as well, because it really illuminates the South Korea-U.S. relationship extremely well, I think. And uh, you know, he was, you know, he was a child during the Korean War. I mean, he was in Seoul, you know, when the, when the city changed hands six times you know, during, during the war. And and uh, and so Chung Wee Young and I uh, worked very closely together. He came to the United States with with the head of uh, South Korea's intelligence agency. You know that uh, his intelligence head met with Gina Haspel. He and I met together, briefed me. I brought the cabinet together. Minus, uh, as a courtesy to say, hey, let's, let's hear right from the horse's mouth. You can ask whatever questions you have. And this was about Kim Jong-un's proposal that President Trump meet Kim, Kim Jong-un. And it was immediately after that uh, meeting that I, you know, I briefed the president. I mean, I knew what, I knew what the president's answer was going to be. You know, he was going to say yes. And, and really what, Did what I- Did you advise I, him not to do that meeting? 
Or well, you know, I, I told him, I, I told him that I, I think it would be better for us, uh, uh, all things being, you know, being, being equal if, if, uh, you know, if we could let maximum pressure run longer, right? Because what we wanted is we wanted Kim Jong-un to conclude that, hey, you know, you're, you're safer without nuclear weapons than, than, than you are with them. Your, your regime is, and you'll be better off. The Kim family regime is going to be better off. Uh, and and w- what I was concerned about is that the, the, that first summit would alleviate the pressure, right? And, and there wouldn't be the enforcement of sanctions. And, and we get back to, to the failed pattern of, uh, of previous efforts. And, and we were determined not to repeat those. And that failed pattern is, you know, that you know, uh, you know, North Korea engages in a series of provocations, right? Uh, typically what we would do in the past is we would rush to talk to them, fall all over, say, let's talk to them. And sometimes in multilateral uh, formats, you know, and, uh, and then what, 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 uh, what North Korea would do is then demand a payoff just for the privilege of talking with them, then demand the alleviation of sanctions, extort that from us, engage in long drawn out negotiations that end in a weak agreement that guess what? They break with the next provocation. So we said, okay, let's not do that again. In fact, the chapter in which I, I lay this out is called the definition of insanity. Okay, let's 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 not do that again. So, so I but but there were some advantages to the president talking with Kim Jong Un, right? I mean, previous efforts were bottom up. Okay, that didn't work. This would be top down. They were both kind of unknown quantities to, as leaders, dis, disruptive maybe figures and so forth. And so maybe something good could happen. So I thought, okay, how do we mitigate it? Let's keep the pressure in place while we pursue the summit. And, and I think that's what we have now. I mean, we still have that. That, that strategy in place. Uh, we have unprecedented sanctions, which are imperfectly, uh, inadequately enforced. I think we should do that. There's much more we can do under the strategy of maximum pressure vis-a-vis China. If, if, uh, if China doesn't, doesn't continue to enforce the sanctions with interdiction, all sorts of other actions we could take. So, so you know, I, 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 there was a downside from my view, but I knew the president would want to do the summit. And so it was my job, right, to, to, to make that option as good as possible. So another area, and I wish we had more time, but that's why people are going to enjoy your book, is Iran. Uh, you had very strong feelings about that, and you were really caught in, a, in an awkward situation between the president's policy and your own views and, and how they developed. Uh, the president was really hell-bent on withdrawing from the agreement, which made it difficult for you. Well, you know, I, I didn't really try to convince him, Jim. Like, I didn't try to say, hey, this is what you have to do, Mr. President. I always try to give him multiple options. And, and I think what, the reason why he didn't pull out right away is I said, hey, you can pull out anytime you want. And, and before you pull out, we have some leverage. Some leverage, maybe not necessarily with the, the, the Iranians as much as we do with so, our, some of our allies and like-minded countries to say, hey, look, hey, we'll stay in the JCPOA in the short term, but you have to work together with us to fix the fundamental flaws in the deal. And just as importantly, to sanction Iranian behavior that, that lie outside of that deal, especially in connection with Iran's continuation of the 40-year-long proxy war against the great Satan, us, the little Satan, Israel, and the Arab monarchies. And so, and so that, that, was, that was the message I, I, I gave the president. And on behalf of the cabinet, you know, who, who joined me in making that recommendation, but hey, you know, Jim, I knew it was only a matter of time, right? I mean, the president said it's, it's the worst yeah, it's, he said it was the worst deal ever. My chapter title is, is, is a bad deal, right? I, I, as a historian, you never say anything is the worst or best ever uh, because there's, nothing is ever unprecedented. Uh, but, 
but I, you know, I, I knew, I knew, <laughs> I knew the days were numbered, and especially after I turned over to my successor. I mean, you could set your watch by you know how many, <laughs> how many, how many days, how many of the days the JCPOA had left. Hey, well, the other thing I was concerned about is that you know, once we pulled out, like the conversation, at least for a period of time, would be about us. You know, oh, look at the United States pulling out of a deal, which, by the way, you know, wasn't a treaty anyway, but but pulling out of the deal. Uh, and and I, I had hoped for a time at least to keep the keep the conversation more about Iran and its murderous behavior across the region, including the, you know, having a hand in, 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 the, in the killing of, of 600 American soldiers uh, in Iraq uh, during the war. So we wanted to deal too much. We wanted to deal too much. We made too many concessions, right? I mean, I, that's the pattern I see in Afghanistan too, right? I mean, and so it was a, it was a political disaster masquerading as a diplomatic triumph. That's how I, I would describe the, 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 the Iran nuclear deal. So I don't want to let you go without asking this question. Today, over 200,000 Americans have died from the COVID-19 pandemic. And I really have not been able to find the, the, an answer that I believe. So, and you're the one who'll be able to tell us this. What was the status of the National Security Council's pandemic response team when you were there? Did you alter it? John Bolton apparently felt that it was, quote, bloated, and he streamlined it. What is the effect of those changes on our response in the, now? Well, Jim, I, I don't really know what the effect was because I wasn't there. But I will say that what we've seen is evidence that what was lacking, what was lacking in our, our response was coordination and integration. That's what the National Security Council does. It really can't help happen effectively you know, anywhere else, I don't believe, because you can set up a task force you can put the head of health and human services you know, on, on top of it, but none of those other departments work work for that secretary. I think once the vice president took it over, it got better. I think when there was an NSC process running, it, it was better. The, you know, the plan, and this is what we learn from these sorts of, of examples, right? You know, a plan, it's easy to write a plan. <laughs> it's hard to implement it, right? And, and, uh, and the three key factors in this plan was, okay, Stop a, a potential pandemic at its source. Okay, thank you, Chinese Communist Party. Couldn't couldn't do that. You know, the the, the, the second the second is to 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 generate a biomedical response. This is where we fell short. But you know, I think some of the criticism it's a little too strident on on the Trump administration. I mean, it's deserved, right? I mean, they, we didn't have the stocks we needed, but this was the result of supply chains developing over years and years that they were overly fragile. It was based on efficiency rather than effectiveness, just-in-time delivery, and over-reliant you know, on, on, on Chinese manufacturing, right? That was a big mistake over many years. Pharmaceuticals, I think, fall into that same kind of category. And then once you have a crisis, right, once you had that big spike, you know, you, you don't have any time. So you're throwing resources at it, but, you know, the laws of physics still apply, right? Now we have more ventilators than we'll ever need, but we didn't have them right, right when we needed them. And so, so that's the response and the coordination and integration. That's something to really focus on. And then the third area, which I think we're going to do really well in, Jim, we are doing well, which is in innovation, right? Biomedical innovation. Over multiple administrations, we sunk a lot of resources in it. So did Bill Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates. Thank you to them. Uh, but, but what is that that has given us is the ability to rapidly prototype a vaccine. We didn't have that capability before. It's also given us the capacity to manufacture vaccines at scale, which we didn't have before. And so this, this warp speed, I've got a good feeling about it. I really do. I know Gus Perna, the military officer who's in charge of logistics. He's a great guy. 
um, a really fun, a phenomenal officer. So I think, I, I think, okay, you know, the uh, two of the three, uh, we, we couldn't get done. And, and, and our, we want to share your optimism. So how unfair is this to ask you to comment on the Abraham Accords and the reshaping of the Middle East in two minutes? Okay, well, quickly, it's a big, it's, it's a really big achievement. It's a really big achievement. And I don't think we, we, we want to underestimate it. You know, I, I really, I really get sad by the, by the pit, by the partisan vitriol, you know, and I mean, this is something, okay, give the Trump administration credit for this one, right? I mean, go back to the Riyadh conference, right? And everybody said, what the heck is Donald Trump doing going to Saudi Arabia? And, but look at his speech and King Salman's speech. Those were, I think, extraordinary speeches because of how aligned they were. And I think there was tremendous diplomacy involved in, in deepening these relationships that already existed, uh, but, but deepening these relationships between the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and other Gulf countries and Israel. It's important. It's important, first of all, because it sends a strong message to Iran. You can no longer prosecute the sectarian civil war unchecked. You can no longer use religion to divide people and to enmesh them in conflict, to keep the Arab states perpetually weak, and to threaten Israel with destruction. I love the name Abraham Accords because it, it, it communicates, hey, we're all people of the book, right? We are bound together in our common humanity. And so, hey, I, I feel really, really good about it. I'm glad it happened. Uh, I know it also, it, 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 uh, it at least suspended, I, I think, closed the door on, on annexation of the West Bank, which is a positive development. I think it, at, least, at least it keeps open the very difficult prospect of a two-state solution. So, hey, I, I, you know, it's very rare, Jim, that you get good news out of the Middle East. And when we do, let's just take a moment to say, hey, this is a, this is a good thing. Our mutual friend Ryan Crocker always says, you think today is bad, tomorrow will be worse. So <laughs> when you're talking about the Middle East, well, I, I think our viewers can tell that this is really a substantive book. Uh, the general and I were talking before we started, and I uh, said there Lots of easy, fun books to read and you know, sort of gossipy, but this book is really worth reading. Uh, don't just keep it on your shelf. It's very well written, and I know you'll learn a lot, and uh, you'll continue to refer back to it. Uh, General McMaster, thank you for your service to our country, and thanks for being a guest of the World Affairs Councils all across the country, and continued success and, and good health to you and your family. Jim, Let me thanks. remind you. Yes, sir. And let me remind everybody, I hope you'll join us tomorrow when we are with PJ O'Rourke. It'll be a fun program, a little different tone. So hope that you'll be there and always go to our website at dfwworld.org. And thank you again to our sponsors. Have a great evening. Thanks for being with us.